Yes, welcome to For and Against, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Roach with you here, and it's a very warm welcome to 2021, where I'm pleased to say you'll be hearing from us monthly, generally dropping, I believe the lingo is, towards the end of each month. Joining me on the panel today from Melbourne, Stephen Riley. Steve, how are you going? G'day, Paul. G'day, everyone. Also, Simon Johnson. Jono, how are you? I'm good, Rochi. How are you? That's good. I'm not too bad at all. And uh, David Bear Gill, how are you going, Gilly? I'm going great. Thanks for coming back and really joining us uh, after the Christmas break. How was your sporting summer, the, 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 the summer break? couple high, a high and a low, Gilly. Anything exciting happened for you on the sporting world? So I'll start with a low. It's a bit of a personal low, but it was golf courses being shut down in my area during the <laughs> during the, the Sydney lockdown. But then the high a few days later was then being reopened, but only being open to people in my area, which meant that you could walk on and play whenever you wanted. Ah, that's, you were in one of those hot spots, were you? I was in a hot spot, yeah. Right, excellent. Jono, what about yourself? A high and a low? Yeah, probably a high for me was getting out to the 2020 Australia-India match. This was mm-hmm. just before that sort of second or third wave, whatever it was, mm-hmm. 30,000 fans out at the SCG. So it was great to see some live sport. I, I think that'll be my only live sport in quite some time. Potentially. Uh, and a low, uh, probably similar to Dave, I've played some good golf, but I've played a little bit of average golf over the summer as well. So some mm. promising signs though. What about you, Roz? Is there a high and low for you, sporting high and low over the last uh, little while? Well, I think the low was that I uh, had to cancel a trip to come up to Sydney for Christmas, uh, but that led to the high, which was going to day one of the Boxing Day test. Uh, mm. what, what a fantastic series. What an amazing series. Test cricket proves itself once again. Yep. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit a, a little bit about that later. And look, my high was similar was getting one to day one of the Sydney test, although I was only, for reasons aren't worth going into, only really able to get to one session. And uh, so got there for the first ball, first session of day one. And of course, as, as it does in Sydney, it rained. So I saw seven and a half <laughs> overs of cricket. Retired uh, to the pub. But it's still, well, actually we did, but that's another story. Um, so that is, that's actually my high. Uh, and then the low was the cancellation of Sydney to Hobart. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. And I thought I might get someone picking that as a high, actually. But um, First time in how many years? First time uh, ever, really, wasn't it? Yeah, first time ever. Yeah. It was first uh, sailed in 1945. Okay. So, um, yeah. Anyway, look, coming up in the show, the Aussie Open. Uh, a few different angles on cricket, the streaming of sport starting to gather pace here in Australia, and a little bit of both Hollywood and Bollywood. Of course, we'll be finishing with Red Card, Yellow Card, where we celebrate the off-field indiscretions of various sporting kinds. Use the hashtag RCYC if you see one and to let us know. Now, speaking of the socials, uh, get us on Twitter at forandagainst underscore. You can email us if you're that kind of person on forandagainst at hotmail.com. Uh, Jono, you're our Vice President of Insta and Facebook. That's right, For and Against, our Insta handle and um, our Facebook page, For and Against, as well. Oh, it's all up and running. That's too easy. Okay, let's get into it. Well, Melbourne doesn't seem to have much luck putting on a Grand Prix, but the city has welcomed the world's tennis players in a determined bid to get the Australian Open happening. It's hard to believe that a mere 12 months ago, the Australian Open happened like, um, well, like like it was the before times. Uh, anyway, there's been a few hiccups, a few un- unwanted positives and a few sudden uh, unwanted jobs for the PR people, but it is on. And uh, joining us to discuss these trials and tribulations, ABC Sport online producer, Andrew McGarry. Andrew, welcome to the show. G'day, guys. How are you going? 
Good, thank you. Andrew, it was reminiscing. I think, uh, were you our first interview on our previous incarnation more than just a, more than just a game on the national broadcaster? Oh, I don't think I was first. I was early doors. Very close, very close. So good to have you on early doors here. In, a rich, in again. rich history. Rich a history. Long and storied history with uh, Andrew. Yeah. Um, now, Andrew, uh, look, it, it, it is, the tournament's on. It's it's pretty impressive that it's actually got on, it seems to us. Now, uh, in your role with ABC Sport, For now, at least. Well, true, 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 true. And and depending on people, when people download this, they may be more across that element than us. But let's assume for a moment that it's occurred. Um, the logistics involved in getting this happening, uh, interested in whether in your role you've sort of had a bit of insight into the difficulties that have actually uh, have been faced to get this happening, to get us to where we are now. From the very From the very start, when this was all agreed, you know, you had players from 100 countries on 17 chartered flights uh, from seven different cities coming into um, Melbourne to go to three different hotels. And as soon as they landed, well, within a very short space of time, um, it all started to go pear-shaped because you started having, um, you had positives and it ended up with, you know, 72 players in full quarantine uh, in Melbourne and the rest of the players, I'm not sure exactly what the, the full number is, um, but players plus coaches and, and um, entourage. Um, so the rest of them in what you'd call, uh, I suppose, a modified quarantine where they are allowed out for five hours a day, um, ostensibly to train, but part of that would be like a couple of hours practice a couple of hours in the gym and the rest of it is trying to, you know, um, meals and whatnot. So it's a very different, it's a very different situation to what the, your, uh, your average tour professional is going to be uh, used to. So yeah, point of order, point of order, Andrew. Yeah. When you say it all went pear shaped, you mean, thank God for Victoria doing all the heavy lifting for Australia again and defending us against the worldwide COVID uh, yeah, virus. That's, that's, what, uh, that's what I thought you to, said. Welcome yeah. to the Melbourne Bureau there. Good work. <laughs> Says our Melbourne correspondent, Stephen mm. Riley. You've, you've really been converted, Riles, haven't you? This ex-Sydney boy, totally oh, brainwashed down there st- in Melbourne. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Were you going to ask a sensible question then, Gilly? Well, I was going to say, you know, this, this behind-the-scenes logistical challenge is really should be the story because the fact that they're putting on a tournament at all or trying to is incredible when you read when you read about it and some of the stats that Andrew went through I think they're doing they've got actually 1,270 people in quarantine every single one of those people is being tested every day Um, all of the Australian Open's 650 employees are working on this around the clock reputedly 18 hours a day Um, but yet this is this has been overshadowed by by other things. And also, if I might add, there's also 1,500 people from Quarantine Victoria who are being used to try and keep all this, these balls in the air. So obviously there are some players who are essentially assigned to barracks. They're in their room and they can't leave for the 14 days. Then you have the, the, play, the players and, and, and coaches who are allowed out and the, the, the way that this is the, the almost military operation that is being used to sort this out, because you don't want people gathering in the same place, you want people distanced. So, for example, when it's time for uh, players to train, 
an entire floor is basically blocked off. They go a floor at a time. And the understanding is that one room at a time gets let out and no one else can move during that time while they are let out to their particular training spot. And once they get out, then the next room goes and then no one can move for that period of time. And during that whole process, then all these areas are being sprayed. And it's it's just, it's it's quite astonishing the, the level of, um, of procedure and process that's having to be gone through by these people, by these organizers to try and keep this thing afloat. You know, we're, we're still, you know, they've got to go through the remainder of quarantine plus the six the, the, the six um, sort of practice tournaments, if you will, before the actual uh, event starts so that people have a chance to, to play and have actual matches um, before, before we hit the open. There's a lot of things between uh, that have to be gone through to get to the tournament, never mind the tournament itself. Andrew, the um, the logistics are one thing. I agree, and it's been fascinating to watch that. Um, what I found particularly interesting, though, has been, I guess, some of the social media accounts which um, have come out, which really, I guess, range from the sublime to the ridiculous. So you've got the sublime of some players who are using their ingenuity to to practice in their hard lockdown hotel rooms using mattresses as springboards, um, which is fascinating to watch. They're doing the equivalent of a seven minute workout in a hotel room or whatever it might be to keep fit. And then the ridiculous um, Bernie Tomic's girlfriend, of course, who complained about not getting her hair done twice a week at the professional hairdressers and having to wash her own hair in a in a hotel bathroom. You're which... wading into red card, yellow card territory oh, very early in the I, show I, here, Jimmo. I am, but it, it is the ridiculous. But um, yeah, any thoughts on, on that, Andrew, and how that's all, all played out from a PR perspective? Look, it's difficult. If I was in Victoria, I would not have been that impressed about some of the interactions from players um you know some people got it better than others uh, victoria azarenka came out with a, a a good post where she called on the players to sort of use understanding and empathy for the people of victoria and what they'd been through when before making you know judgment calls about the the uh, standard of the food, or the uh, the the uh, limited hours, or the the the, the limitations on their movements, etc., um, to be in to to get have to have the um, the benefit of being able to play in this tournament, this major tournament. Um, so there were some people who kind of got the vibe. Um, then, on the other hand, you had people. Um, like Elise Cornet and Roberto Batista Agu, who um, made their social media complaints and kind of got slapped down a bit fairly quickly. And then, of course, there was um, uh, Novak Djokovic, who the Joker, um, <laughs> who has to be said has form in this area um, <laughs> after the uh, debacle that was the Adria Tour um, exhibition event um, last year. Um, and he wrote to organisers with a list of, well, requests, demands, who knows, uh, about how they could make things better, including, um, you know, better food and um, allowing players to isolate in private homes outside of hotels and, you know, which kind of goes against the whole um, 
the whole idea of the distancing idea you know you want to keep people together but apart uh and it was very much a world number one going um you know having a crack and not well you know he played right into a, a the australian ethos's hands didn't he really i mean it's it's we do love our it's a really interesting test for us we do love our sport we put our sports gods on pedestals but especially while there were victorians who are literally locked out of the state when he made demands he basically opened the door for the politicians to say we don't offer special treatment just because you're a multi-multi-millionaire and you know the the opportunity to play um is it like victoria azarenka said it's fantastic the other thing that I think served to um, bear out the way that officials have run this is that they've had a number of COVID cases and a number of people have tested positive. And that frankly, in my book has made all of the restrictions worthwhile that there's a chance they're getting them in early. They can go through two weeks and we should have a safe tournament or we give it the best mm. possible chance anyway. And it probably, I mean, Andrew, does it give you any hope that potentially other major sporting events can be run? I mean, if you look at the way the Australian Open is being run, um, for example, with the Olympics coming up, do you think that, you know, that gives hope to, to Tokyo 2021 as it is now? Um, well, it's, I, I think there's very, there are some very different dynamics going on there. I mean, I think that the Olympics, if it does go ahead, will probably have no fans at all able to be there mm. um there will be as i understand it the plan is to have some fans uh in melbourne but i think that, that you might find that they are very much split three ways that there will be sort of zones i think the idea is where you'll be able to go to margaret court arena or you'll be able to go to um rod laver arena or you'll be able to go to high sense or whatever but you won't be able to cross over so you won't have that familiar Melbourne Park experience of being able to wander around and see whatever you have with your pass. I think it'll be very much, um, very much restricted. So it, it kind of depends what level of disruption sports people, sporting organisations are ready to accept to have things go ahead. Absolutely. Look, I think there's, it's, it's interesting to see, uh, it'll be interesting to see how much Tokyo's plans change based on how well this goes. You know, I think that the, um, the success of having two weeks enforced lockdown beforehand for this, and if, if they're able to go through the tournament without an outbreak uh, after the, the hard lockdown, I think you'll expect to see Japan just something similar, which will be really take a lot of leadership on Japan's part to do that to 200 countries. But I think if this goes well, I think that's the only way the Olympics goes off without a, well, I don't know if you can say it's going to go off without a hitch. It's the only way it runs relatively smoothly. I suspect that'll be good fodder for for and against over the coming, uh, coming six months or so. Um, I did, McGarry, I did want to ask you uh, about our friend Nick Kyrgios. Um, you know, in, in some respects, he's undergoing something of a, a transformation in the public eye. Um, personally, I think it's just he's, he's just still being his same, his same old self. He just he happened to say some stuff that actually the majority view uh, concurs with. Um, but I was interested. I read somewhere that he's sort of got some PR people on board. He's got the management, he's got some new people in. Uh, I'm not sure if you're across that at all. But how much does that sort of have an, have an impact on, on a sportsman's 
sports persons. I beg your pardon. I'm thinking of curious obviously, but sports person sort of presence in the in in the public public eye. Like in in your role, have you sort of, do you sort of come across the PR elements of an athlete, or are you sort of just dealing with the raw athlete uh, themselves? And and obviously that then feeds into whether curious has actually changed, or whether we're just seeing the same old curious and he happens to say something we agree with. Well, it depends. I mean, if if you're talking about team sports everything is uh, most things are filtered through uh team pr team press and team media who decide who gets access to certain to players to get interviews and all that kind of caper so it 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 depends with individual athletes um there's always some level of entourage there's always some level of um filtering i suppose I can't really, I can't really talk about whether or not, you know, all these guys have, um, all these stars have um, greater or lesser amounts of PR behind them. Uh, for what it's worth, I think the changing point for Kyrgios wasn't necessarily saying things that people agreed with and having a go at, um, well, Djokovic last year with the Adria Tour, and Djokovic again this time for calling him a tool for um, yep. for what his for his statements. But because that's not what, that's not the work of a PR professional calling someone a no, tool. No, it's not. No, but I think what <laughs> I think what changed it. I think what changed it was his response to the bushfires last year, um, because he's a Canberran. Canberra was in strife. Um, he that was sort of front of mind and he made his uh he was the one of the driving forces behind tennis's response to the to bushfire relief and, and getting all that uh, fundraising events going i think that kind of ch- started to change people's perspective of him and then after that his no nonsense approach to the the tennis players who were doing the wrong thing was um just a a, a step forward from there yeah i, th- I think he had a few good things this year. I think the fires were big for him. Um, I think Djokovic twice. Bernard Tomic, you can't under, 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 uh, understate the importance of having mm. a go at, at Bernard Tomic. Uh, I also his, think his, he his was... Misses. His misses. His misses, <laughs> not Bernie. Well, I don't I mind st- Bernie. Exactly. But yeah, his misses obviously has no perspective. Ridiculous Bernie was too scenes. busy counting his money. Um, I think the other thing that, that happened for uh, Kyrgios this year was he was quite human when Kobe Bryant died. And was a real sort of public um, voice in that, in Australia anyway, which I think helped with his uh, his PR. If he is paying someone to help him, I'm still really, really surprised. <laughs> but <laughs> but he's, he's had a he's had a good PR year. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, we've got an interesting uh, summer coming up as we talk, and hopefully it does continue to get ahead the Australian Open without, uh, and, and we get a winner. That's all we really want, and hopefully that. That happens, and all power to the organisers for getting us to the point we've got to. Hopefully not Djokovic. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point, actually. Uh, Andrew, Andrew McGarry uh, from ABC Sport, thank you very much for joining us on For and Against. Yet another sensational Australia versus India cricket series has wrapped up, and while the column inches were largely dedicated to that improbable win in Brisbane, 15 to 1 I got. Can you believe it? Disgraceful. Fifteens. Backing, backing against the Australians. Just, look, the mathematical, or just it was a, it was a maths play. Two horse race, 15-1. I'm, I'm absolutely going to get on board on that. 
Almost did a tenner, only a fiver. It's okay. Uh, look, it's just been it's been just as revealing about the huge potential of the Indian cricket industrial complex. I'm calling it, um, Gilly. I mean, with 1.3 billion people and cricket being the unofficial religion, there's a there's a fair chance their second eleven was actually going to be okay. Yeah, Rochi, I think this might be something like the new normal in cricket. And look, we, we faced the challenge of the West Indies in the 70s and 80s, and we stared them down and, and beat them eventually. But we, we're dealing with a completely different beast this time around. Yeah, it took us, it took us, it took us two decades. And I tell you what, we may as well get used to India um, dominating mm. test cricket for the next 50 years. And it just comes down, I think, often uh, in sports to demographics and finance or economics um, obviously they have a pool of 1.3 billion players um, the middle class in India 30 years ago was very small so actually a very small percentage of that population playing cricket but that's changing rapidly mm. um, but then when you get into the into the figures um, India gets 405 million out of um, the pool that's divided between all the ICC members mm. next highest is England on 139 million <laughs> and then Australia and all the other big teams, um, 128 million. So everybody's way behind on that analysis. But the total income of the BCCI is estimated at between 500 to 500 million to 2 billion US dollars a year, which mm. just puts them in a different stratosphere to to the competition. And with the ICC arrangement, they want more. They're not happy with their 405 million. They want 570 million, which would be 32% of the total, which they say is fair because we generate 70% mm. of the revenue. That old chestnut. I think that's, I mean, I agree with all of that, um, Bear. I think the other point to note, though, um, was how well they played away from home. And that's been, I guess, one of their difficulties in, in being able to win away from home. But I think one of the reasons for that is we're not seeing the same sort of pitches, um, or getting different pitches, I guess, um, for Australia as compared to their conditions. You're seeing very homogenous conditions. The Gabba really didn't bounce like it usually did. We didn't play at the Wacker this time around. And so that advantage we would normally have on fast, pacey decks just wasn't there. So I think, you know, that plays at least some role as well. Well, it's no real surprise we didn't play at the Wacker. I mean, that's part of the power of India. I'm a little bit surprised mm. we ended up at the Gabba. Um, yeah. I, I would say, though, if you go back to Dave's point about the numbers, they've got 38 first-class teams. So if you want to pick for the conditions then they've got a lot of depth to go to. And, you know, we're, we're, the next time we play India in Australia, um, you know, we'll have lost the last two series in Australia. So the, the home town advantage is uh, not a sure thing anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a juggernaut, right? And if they get their act together, it's going to be unstoppable, which is basically your point. Um, Which they seem to have. I mean, India is known for, you know, bureaucratic ineptitude mm. and lack of efficiency. But I don't think from what I've read, I don't think the BCCI falls into that category. I think they're a pretty slick operation and they're on top of things. And of course, we can blame all of those Australian coaches who made a lot of money after they gave up mm -hmm. playing, uh, moved to India and coached fast bowlers and batsmen who could play on fast pitches. So it's going to be a tough battle. But, you know, we've... Um, we're the greatest cricketing nation on earth well, and um, we'll have to find a solution. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think there's one other thing, which is, you know, I mean, you look at the IPL and you think, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's 20 over cricket. But there's an extra bit to this, which is it's professional. These guys are athletes now and so they come to Australia, they're stronger, despite, you know, almost the whole team getting injured and being replaced by the B team, which then beat us. They hmm. are much more professional. They're, and you go back to previous teams that were you know, not a draw card because it was a relatively easy series. 
and they didn't have the fitness, they didn't have the pace, they didn't have the depth. Uh, professionalism, the IPL has changed things. And uh, speaking of 2020, uh, it's changed, changed a few things in the Australian landscape as well. Cricket Australia uh, stuck its neck out not that long ago, uh, well, about its Australia Day matches, and it declined to attach the label Australia Day to its January the 26th matches, uh, which was an interesting development and certainly caused a few, um, well, parties of people, people uh, on both sides of politics to, um, to make some pretty clear enunciations about what they thought about that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, this one. And, I mean, ScoMo, as is his want, seems to be trampling all over this one. He's come out and says uh, that he's very disappointed in Cricket Australia. There should be a little bit more focus on cricket and a little less focus on politics would be my message to Cricket Australia. Had sports roots go there, uh, Mr Morrison? Well, the ultimate irony, you know, sports and politics shouldn't mix, according to ScoMo. But, I mean, that is the ultimate of the pot calling the kettle black, isn't it? I mean, he would take every photo opportunity to be um, photographed with sports people over the years. What's he going to do with the Prime Minister's 11? Um, yeah, look, I, I think he's unfortunately spoken too soon and pretty poorly, but uh, he's been slammed on social media. Didn't you feel like there was a little bit of, I don't, don't know if this is exactly the right word, but a bit of tokenism on both sides? Like everybody's kind of dusting off their talking points. On the on the one hand, you've got the sporting organisation who's doing their um, political correct inclusiveness thing. And then ScoMo, is, of course, he's going to say what he says. Everything, every prime minister that I can remember, you know, will react in the same way if something is said about Australia Day that's not going to... Um, not going to resonate with the majority of, of the population. I kind of felt like there was nothing new to this. Mm. I don't, don't agree at all. You know, I think when you start to, I mean, even the way you phrased politically correct inclusive thing, just go with inclusive thing. This, this was sports saying we're going to go with the approach that allows the most people to be involved and come in. You know, by not calling it Australia Day, you can still come in if you're celebrating Australia Day. But if you're not, then you can also come in. I think it was a, it was, you know, it was, it was an act of leadership by Cricket Australia. Mm. And I don't give them credit very often, but I give them credit for this one. Yeah, I mean, I find myself a bit torn on on this, and and we don't. There's a there's a much wider issue. I I know obviously about what we call a day and whether we'd celebrate that day and that kind of thing. But um, it's hard to remove the fact that there's an official day called Australia Day, but it's also hard to ignore the fact that it's not an inclusive day. And the irony of four middle-aged white guys talking about that's this, right. it's, it's always that's, difficult, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> well, like you say, Steve, uh, good leadership there from, from Cricket Australia, um, certainly bold leadership. Um, and sticking with 2020, but leaping over to the Americas, Major League 2020, how do you like the sound of that? The Yanks are trying to launch a cricket tournament. Um, now, I think, uh, well, I mean, here's a stat for you. So the U.S. apparently is the second largest market to consume cricket content after, of course, India. Consequently, one of the world's biggest movie stars, uh, a Bollywood, uh, someone in Bollywood, whom, Gilly, I'm sure you're going to fill us in on, in on tick, uh, who I think is invested in the Knight Rider group, as in the Kolkata Knight Riders, uh, is investing in a, in a quote-unquote American cricket enterprises, which is setting up a city-based 2020 league they're hoping to start in 2022. Yeah, and I, I, I can't tell you too much about um, Shah Rukh Khan, except that he's 
Bollywood royalty. And when I first heard about this, I was thinking, well, you know, are they looking to to tread on baseball's turf? Because, you know, baseball's a very slow game, hasn't hasn't changed in decades. And T20s, you know, it's got colour and resmataz, all of the things that you would expect would, would work in America. But then I came across the same thing as you, which is this is really aimed at the Indian mm. diaspora um, in the United States. And I've had some um, personal experience with this recently. I work for a tech company, a lot of American Indians who work in tech in the US and they all absolutely love their cricket. Mm. I've never had a conversation about cricket with an American except um, during this recent test series Mm. and these guys are well into it and it actually, if they live on the um, the west coast of the US, the tests were on at quite a good time Mm. for them. It was like evening viewing. So I was... um, Prime time. Day, it was day it, test here at prime time on the West Coast. It was prime time, and these guys knew their cricket so well. <laughs> because I think I think there's a dedicated cricket um, channel over there as well. Um, I think so. Yeah, Willow Willow TV. I think it's called dedicated cricket for exactly that. Steve, I bet it does. Well, and don't forget, you know, not only do you have the the Indian diaspora over there, you also have some really prominent companies led by really prominent Indians. Microsoft's run by an Indian, Alphabet's run by an Indian. Mm. So there should be a bunch of sponsorship dollars dollars to chase this, promote this, and and build it up. Watch out, baseball. Yeah, good call. Uh, cricket, <laughs> cricket in that part of the world it does have a very exciting recent history. Just to share a few little instances with you. So the USACA, oh, that, that just sounds good, USACA. The American Cricket Association. Exactly. Uh, they were suspended in from the ICC in, in mid-2000 for about a year. It's something about their constitution. Again, in 2015, an ICC review had significant concerns about the governance, finance, reputation and cricketing, cricketing activities of USACA. They were then expelled in 2017. Uh, but then a new organisation, USA Cricket, was welcomed back into the fold in 2019. So I hope that that all goes well. And, of course, I, I couldn't help but thinking about... Do you, do you remember the, the Stanford Super Series? A guy called Alan Stanford oh, yeah. put a lot of money... And the Caribbean. The, the Caribbean, exactly. So just I'm broadening the, uh, the ge- geographical circle here. But um, I, I, I did a tiny bit of research and learnt that he bas- the suspicion is he basically set that tournament up to launder a whole lot of money. From I think it was more than a suspicion. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, well, he's now doing 110 years uh, jail time mm. for uh, those activities. Roach, I've just had an awful premonition. It's yeah. us in 20 years' time explaining how we lost a home test series against the USA. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> They're a juggernaut. <laughs> uh, and that, folks, is cricket. On to the shootout where we uh, try and cover a few topics in uh, slightly quicker style. Um, Stan. Stan has joined the sports world. Stan is in the uh, the streaming service. Uh, and it's joined Optus, obviously, in the sports streaming world. Uh, Stan having taken rights to Australian rugby. Yes, despite what we were talking about a few shows ago, it does seem that Australian rugby still has a pulse. Uh, and shortly after it was announced that rugby was going to Stan, uh, Wimbledon and Roland Garros apparently also going to be shown on that channel. So the beginnings of streaming. I mean, Optus. I reference Optus. They're obviously um, they're very much football oriented, uh, European in many many respects. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting seeing streaming coming over the hill, as it were, in the Australian sports market. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I would just say that this this flatters to deceive a little bit around the the. Um the, the tide of streaming coming in. Um, this is Channel 9. You know, Nine's interest in Stan. They've got the rights to Wimbledon 
and uh, and the French Open and rugby, and they're finding a channel to do it. Now, they had to do a deal with the sports to do it this way, and I think it's inevitable that they're going to be competing with Amazon and Twitter and, uh, and other streaming services next time around. So they're going to test it out, and all the costs are going to go up next time because they're going to have some competition. But it's great. It's going to be so much easier to watch sport on your phone, on a train, anytime you like. Be interesting to see whether it ends up being good for rugby, though. I mean, it, at the moment, I guess all the test matches that the Wallabies are involved in will be on nine. But let's just hope they're on nine and they don't get punted out to Gem, which will mean it'll be harder and harder for Mr. and Mrs. Joe Public to to watch the the, the Wallabies. Devil will be in the detail. Can I ask a, a deeper question as well in terms of you know the kind of the end um, the end location? I don't know if that's the right word, but are we? Through this, will we in time lose the sporting event that the whole nation kind of coalesces around because everybody gets into their little niches mm. and what Simon watches is completely irrelevant to what Paul watches? I think we're already there, halfway there. Probably. I think the, the anti-filtering, legis- anti-siphoning legislation will probably help that to some degree. It'll sort of... Um you know, protect a certain certain number of events, Steve? Well, I think I think the big defence is is the time decay. It pays to watch it at the same time. So it's different to watching Netflix. You don't mm. have to watch a series all in sequence at the same time, although there are some shows that have still done that to really fantastic success and are, and are doing it now. Um, yeah, The Mandalorian was getting same-time coverage around the world, some of the new Marvel stuff, WandaVision's doing that. With sport, though... It's really, you know, you, you can't afford to wait very long. So I think you're still going to get that community thing. Here's the big event. If anything, it's going to be more accessible because you didn't have to be at home to watch it. You can be in the, 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 the remote table at the wedding watching under, you know, just, just <laughs> under the side of, of the wedding table. And they're probably watching as well. Yeah, and that's a good point. The the the. the the amount of eyeballs live sport attracts is the thing that I think will actually allow free-to-air um, to maintain its position for, for, for the foreseeable future as the preeminent owner, if that's the right word, of those big events. Now, the niche stuff, the things that maybe you don't see anyway, obviously that's going to, you know, if that's what Fox Sports picks up and that's what streaming's going to pick up, you know, you'll have some organisations, sporting organisations who'll start up their own channel um, so they can stream the, the fencing or whatever, no disrespect to fencing, but I haven't seen them on Channel 9 lately. Um, so, yeah, I think that 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 big event thing, it won't go on. That's, and, and live sport, sorry, um, free-to-air channels, because they've lost the the Netflix battle because they don't have those big series that everyone flocks to at a certain time. All they've got left is live sport. Yep. That all makes sense. Well, and they're also going to blend paid with free. So you're seeing it already. KO is going to offer some of the, um, the racing cars, um, for free and they're going to get people into using it and then they'll charge them for the other stuff. Mm. Mm. And look, if you, if you're a believer that foreign, that overseas markets is an indication where we're heading, it was interesting to see the you in the U S NBC announced, quite recently that it was shutting down its sports network, which is its cable network, the, the, the NBC sports network. Um, but the likelihood, the, the scuttlebutt is that they'll transfer all that to Peacock, which is the NBC streaming service, if you can think of the NBC logo, the little sort of peacocky kind of thing. Uh, and also in the UK, I was reading, Amazon was apparently more popular than Netflix in the run-up to Christmas, uh, largely driven by it, by it having Premier League. It had about 20 Premier League games and also international rugby uh, on its menu. So Netflix has, for now, ruled out sport. It said it doesn't want to be, doesn't want to be part of that. But, yeah, Amazon has spent some money. It's, it's two years in its three-year deal with that uh, those 20 Premier League games, and they've invested in rugby as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's 
those tech companies that we were all, the, the fangs, there's a lot of suspicion they'd sort of launch and spend all their billions of dollars, which they haven't. And it looks like they won't. But So it might be a bit more of an incremental drip by drip, but it's coming. The future so, is now, I think. I think so. I think so. And golf, Jono, uh, really want to talk golf. I was, fasc- I was fascinated. I was fascinated by um, uh, the former President Trump. Um, Sounds good, doesn't it? They're still trying. It does, it does, it does. Um, you know, they're still trying to impeach, impeach him last time I heard. Yeah. But the PGA has moved a little bit faster than the Senate, hasn't it? I think this will hurt him even more. I mean, he's banned by Twitter, Google, um, Facebook, everyone else. But, yeah, so the fourth major of uh, the year in 2022 was supposed to be played at the Trump-owned course in New Jersey. Um, but the PGA has said that that would be detrimental to the PGA of America b- uh, brand. I think Don Jr. has come out and blamed cancel culture for this. Uh, very topical phrase at the moment. I mean, I must say I do see some irony in the PGA, a long-time bastion of upper-class white privilege, which has previously turned a blind eye to many of its courses, not allowing African-Americans or women to join its courses, taking the moral high ground. But it does seem to be a... Um, a thing at the moment. Um, Stop the steal is what I say. <laughs> and I, I'm betting that, so they've exercised a right to terminate uh, in their contract. And I'm betting that Trump has a has a, um, a team of crack Rudy attorneys, Giuliani. including Rudy Giuliani, of course, to, to defend his golf tournament. Well, he's, he's had a rough time with sport because I think the Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick, uh, who had been a long time Trump supporter, he refused to accept the presidential medal of freedom right. uh, mm. after the storming of the capital. So poor Donald. It's terrible times. Tough times. I heard Turnberry's kind of not officially, but basically unofficially, is no chance of holding the um, British Open again With while Trump, Trump uh, remains the owner of that right. fine oh, old course. Right. Mm. There you go. And look, look think, talking of things Hollywood, which that kind of is, um, Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds has invested in a fifth division English football team, soccer team. I'm intrigued by that. I, I've seen a headline, and John, I can see you're licking your lips there because and you're nodding your head. Did you know all about this? Why would a Hollywood star oh. tip money into such a lowly sports? Team? Well, I'm fascinated by this for a couple of reasons. I mean, Ryan. I mean, I know you're a big Hollywood aficionado, oh. Rochi. So, star Absolutely. of Deadpool, um, oh, formerly married to Skojo, now married to Blake Scojo. Lively. He's got impeccable taste. He. He set up a gin company called Aviation Gin and sold it for a tidy sum of six hundred and ten million oh, US what? dollars. He's just started a telco called Mint Mobile. Um, so why is he investing in a fifth division Welsh soccer team? I think he wants to make some money out of I it. I would assume so. So um, Wrexham is the world's one of the world's oldest professional soccer clubs. It's currently in the fifth tier, obviously. It doesn't have much of a history, but I, I think he's going to turn it into a bit of a powerhouse. So watch this space. I thought this was sort of mainly about the fly in the wall documentary that they will make simultaneously. Um, Netflix, Amazon, whoever wants to buy it, which was something that was done very successfully by Netflix with Sunderland um, Football Club with Sunderland Till I Die. Have you seen that one? Yeah, it's great. It's really good. And I don't know. I don't know what you know. Sunderland, not the most successful team in the world, but a big, a big club. I'm not sure. um, You know, Wrexham. They may have knocked Man United out of the FA Cup once I think in like 1985, but they're not. It was Arsenal. Arsenal many years ago. It was Arsenal. Yeah. But um, I think that's where he's going. It's the kind it's of docker sport time. Steve, you're our de facto Hollywood correspondent. What do you make of that? I'm, I'm shaking my head. I'm struggling to figure it <laughs> that's out. To what, be that's honest. why I asked Look, you the question. There, there was a show on Apple TV earlier this year called Ted Lasso, which was about an American football coach 
who comes over to coach in the Premier League. Uh, it did very, very well as a top-class funny show. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if this is on trend amongst some of the, the Hollywood folk. Um, I just I just what I want to look out for is what he does with the football club when he's finished the documentary. Hmm. Turning it over. Churn and burn. Buyout giant Silver Lake closes in on a stake in New Zealand All Blacks, yelled the ever so slightly misleading headline that I read not that long ago. In fact, they, being Silver Lake, uh, who are part owners of Manchester City, uh, it was suspected of an, about to announce a deal to acquire a minority holding in New Zealand rugby's commercial rights arm. So leaving aside the, uh, as I say, the, the slightly misleading headline about, uh, headline, headline about Silver Lake taking a stake in the All Blacks per se, it's still something of an interesting development. And they're not the only code or they're not the only sporting body uh, faced with some a slight drop in revenue uh, post-COVID or as a result of COVID, looking for alternative ways of get some, getting some revenue happening. Um, but I thought that was quite interesting. I, I'm still a, still a little idealist in me who says that uh, you can't just trade a sport. You know, a national sporting body that just doesn't sit well with me, Gilly. But I think it's a it's a case of necessity being the mother of invention, and um, New Zealand, the All Blacks, just not knowing what their revenue is going to be over the next few years. Huge venture capital firm, they have a huge risk appetite. I mean, they will be making investments right, left, and centre, and they know that they're going to lose on some of them, but win big on others. You look at it from the perspective of a tr- traditional um, source of capital, like a bank, they'll be looking at things going, oh, I'm not sure we want to be lending anybody a lot of money right now. But a venture capital firm will come in and say, we, we've done our, you know, we've got access to the best data there is. We know what's going to happen with COVID-19. We are willing to take the risk. Mm. And it solves a short-term problem for the All Blacks. Yeah, look, I, I, I've had mixed feelings about this. I think... Um there's obviously good money to be made. And if you get a professional organized, commercial organization involved in running sport, they're trying to do their best for the sport because it's in their interest to make it sustainable. And so then they make a little bit of money out of it. We've seen not just, just All Blacks commercial rights, but Formula One recently got sold. Again, I mean, that was already privately owned, really. Uh, CVC took a share in that. They own some of the Premier League. They've certainly had a go at Six Nations. Uh, that's mm. fine. But I don't know that – I think Dave's right. It's good when a sport's in trouble. But when it's not, I'd hate to see it go this way because I still think sport, when it's run not for profit, is the purest and the best sporting outcome that we get. And it gets the best entertainment. Someone else makes the money maybe. Well, hopefully it's the players and the organisation, but they don't need to do it for, for profit of shareholders. And that's a, the one, uh, I guess – big risk with private equity is it's all generally about short-termism, isn't it? A private equity investment. It's all about turning the business around, potentially selling it and making a quick buck. And I wonder whether that model works with um, as particularly a, a national sport or yeah. the Six Nations. Yeah, I mean, they, they have a re- reputation. Sorry to jump in there, John. They have a reputation as, as, as short-termism, but, but, uh, but there's also a sense of it might take a number, a number of years to turn this around. I think of Archer Capital, who have owned, or I'm not sure if they still do, supercars, but yeah, supercars in this country. And they've had an association with supercars for, I'm going to say, close to a decade. You know? And so there are, there are those who stick it in. I'm not sure they're going to sort of look to you know, turn it over in the next six months. I know that's not the time period you were suggesting. But, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it it's, can't be a coincidence, right, that these private equity firms are getting involved in 
Riles, as you said, Six Nations, and they already have a stake in the, the rugby uh, uh, premiership in, in England and I think Europe as well. Uh, and now this happens. I mean, maybe COVID's the, the opportunity for these private equity types to go, there's a bit of value in here. There's a bit of desperation on the part of the seller. Um, let's get in and, and get involved. Yeah, I think I think it's okay though, because in this case they're buying an income income stream. At the end of the day, they're not they're not buying the All Blacks by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. It would be interesting interesting to see the details of the contracts, but I think they would be trusting the All Blacks to run the franchise in the best possible way. It's still in their interest to do so. They still own eighty five percent of that revenue. Mm. So you know, I think it's it's creative. Mm. All right, it is time now for. Red card, yellow card. Yes, red card, yellow card, where we enjoy poking fun at sports folk who have um, misstepped off the field of play and uh, we enjoy going back over them and drawing attention to them once more. Stephen Riley, what have you got for us? I have got a double nomination. I'm nominating Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather for indulging in the idea of having fights against YouTube stars. You know, Floyd Floyd Mayweather, arguably, or maybe not even arguably, the greatest boxer of all time, Conor McGregor, the self-professed greatest UFC fighter of all time, Um, and they have amazing records, and they both allowed this idea of fighting Logan Paul and Jake Paul to, uh, to stand... It's it's outrageous. Red card. Is UFC even a sport? Does this qualify for red card, yellow card? <laughs> who, who are Logan and Jake Paul? Are they yeah. wrestlers? <laughs> <laughs> they're wrestlers, aren't they? No, no, they're not. So Lo- Logan and Jake Paul are two oh, of the most popular. It wasn't YouTubers a serious question, Riley. We don't care. Ah. <laughs> but well, and and uh, I'm going to get I'm going to get the wrong Paul now. Um, they had one of the highest earning pay per views when one of them boxed another YouTuber last year. So there's no doubt they can draw eyeballs. There's no doubt they can make money, but they're not professional athletes, except for the fact that they make money boxing. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I'll accept that red card, Riles, because I'm not fully, not sufficiently informed to disagree with you. Uh, Gilly, what about yourself? I've got uh, Shane Warne, who we've we've heard of before, this time for breaking the first rule of broadcasting, which we all know very well, which is if you're going to say something Make sure that you are actually off air and ah. the mics are not turned on. And hot mic syndrome. Hot, hot mic. mic. So, I, look, I'm not going to go through the, the details of the exchange between Warney and, and Andrew Simons. There was a lot of a lot of F-bombs, a yeah, lot of well inappropriate things that were said, including this, this reference to a hog pile, yeah, which I've learned now is a, a group of people jumping onto a single person. Until his guts came out. Apparently. Something like that, yeah. yep. We're going to have to squash your guts out of your ass, I think were <laughs> Simon's exact words. But kind of that probably I would submit would be a yellow card. But then moving it towards a red card would be the peak cap that Warney's been wearing through the summer, uh, fashion, yeah. which he's claiming is a fashion statement. But I'm and he's denied this, but I, I feel like something's gone wrong with the um, Ashley and Martin arrangement. Oh, oh, right. okay. And it's yeah, not a cover yeah. up, more of a more of a thatch over, I think. Could be a COVID issue as well. He can't get to his hairdresser or who knows? <laughs> so it's, of a, it's a double yellow. Rather than a straight red, it's two yellows. Yeah. Makes Is that acceptable? Oh, I think that's yeah, it's good innovation, Gilly. I like it. Yeah. Jono, what about yourself? Yeah, look, I hesitate with my one and I, I apologise for what I'm about to say. But um, look, it's one of the more rogue red card, yellow cards. Should I, I get forward. my mum to turn off for a couple of minutes? Yeah, maybe. Two minutes. Um, and look, it speaks for itself. So if 2020 wasn't strange enough, a professional bodybuilder from Kazakhstan... 
Uh, I think his name was Yuri Tolochko. Uh, he has married a sex doll that he's been dating for nearly two years. Some video footage was uploaded to his Insta feed and it was dutifully picked up by respectable media mastheads like the Daily Telegraph, the Herald Sun and the Northern <laughs> Territory News. Clad in a black tux and bow tie, Yuri is seen planting a gentle kiss on Margot, who appears a bit stiff, boom, boom, in her revealing white gown as she clutches a bouquet of flowers and stares into the distance. Now, look, I must admit <laughs> to getting into a real Instagram hole as I did some research <laughs> in this piece, and I can say that Google Translate did a fantastic job of translating the Kazakh or Russian text, whatever it was, but really the pictures did say a thousand words. Images shared on social media illustrate the couple's romantic lifestyle, including sunny vacations and bubble baths. Okay. Captioned hashtags, okay. including hashtag okay. ideal relationship. Okay. Red or yellow? I, I just want to clarify. They dated for oh, two years two? Before, <laughs> before they got married. Yeah, this, is, this has had, been a thing on his Instagram feed for quite some time. to build up the nerve to ask the question. <laughs> um, oh, Jono. I, I gave an apology. Uh, you did, you did. Um, well, how do you follow that? Um, Ned Zelich. Uh, yeah, Ned Zelich, the um, former soccer Wunderkind, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, posted an interesting tweet on the 23rd of January around the time of uh, Joe Biden's inauguration. Quote, instead of President Biden should be called, should be called his fraudulency or the fraudulent one. Hashtag election heist. And if you go get into a social media hole in the Ned Zelich world, you'll find that... Um, He's one of them. Wow. Yeah, so a few, too, few too many um, hard headers mm. in that career, I think, has uh, scrambled his brains. What about his sister? Surely not. Lucy, didn't yeah. In, didn't investigate that. She'd be coming from the opposite end of that political yeah. spectrum, I would have thought. I think so. Probably. Yeah. But yeah, Ned, a bit of a surprise there, but, um, uh, you know, yellow card for him there, but um, bit of a bit of a shame. Bit of, I was a bit surprised. Likewise. You know, went down my estimations. Shame, Ned, shame. And then on that rather tepid note, post your, <laughs> post your nomination, Joe. I've got more. <laughs> no, I'm sure you do. Let's not. We've gone over long enough as it is. Uh, it's time to wrap up the show and say goodbye. So thank you, Stephen Riley. See you later. See you, Paul. See you, everyone. Goodbye to you, Simon Johnson. Don't know how to say goodbye in Kazakh. Fair. I'll learn it for next show. Yeah, good, good idea. Fairly well, David Gill. Great to be here again. Talk And goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Thanks very much for your company on For and Against. We'll do it all again in a month's time. Bye for now. 